And welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Steve, you know we're here to give the people what we want, but also, too, I signed up for a lot of fun with a new job I just took. So, you know, happy, happy, happy all day, every day, because we get to do what we love both here on the podcast and now getting back in the game of the NCAA world in real life. John, what job did you take? Are you you're back in the game? You've you know we stepped out for a while, and you decided I want some more pain and punishment. <laughs> let let let's take on the job of building building programs, developing kids, and influencing them in a positive way. Oh yeah, so yeah, super blessed and humbled to have the privilege and opportunity to be the head coach at Portland State University, where I was an assistant for a little while. Where actually Steve and I you know, essentially started the podcast. Like I remember it started at Fayetteville, Arkansas at regionals one year. We were on a forever delay at regionals because Fayetteville is famous for having thunderstorms and lightning storms during that time. So we're just sitting there in like the embassy suites and like, I don't know, let's start a podcast. All right, let's try it out. Let's do it. Okay. Boom, go. So it's kind of full circle coming back to the park blocks, which is fun and exciting. And now being the person in charge of the program and being able to just deliver a really, really quality experience to the student athletes through the vehicle track and field. Like everyone wants to talk about training. Everyone wants to talk about lifting. Everyone wants to talk about scheduling. Everyone talks about this. You know, it's just like I said all along, the reason Mike is good at NAU is the reason I think we have a fighting shot at Portland State because it's about the people it's about connection it's about community it's about making things fun and real and just having a good time vibing out doing what we love which is dorking out about track and field and cross country and running and training and just getting after it absolutely you know i remember that the the weather delay at in arkansas where it's just we're just killing time before races so that that was the genesis of that and it's only fitting that you're you know you're making the return to Portland State this time as the man in charge, and I can't wait to see what what you do with the program. Yeah, I can't wait to see who is excited to join because I know, you know, it's always tough when you take over a program that's navigated really choppy waters prior to your arrival that like you had nothing to do with. You're like, ooh, and everyone has a you know a perceptive negative attitude or acute negative attitude towards the program administration this or that. But it's a new era. Brighter days are ahead. And, you know, specifically, it's just we're looking to build something that people will take pride in and just, you know, love being a part of and have a positive association with. And the great thing is all my friends are basically at other programs in the area, right? Talk to Jerry Schumacher and he's like, hey, hey, feel is you're always welcome here. Anytime. I go, sweet. Awesome. Rob Connor's like, oh, dude, let's do some fun activation meets, you know, get track and cross country, like front and center in the Portland area again. It's great. You know, Mike Smith was giddy on the phone being like, man, you just made my job a lot tougher. I was like, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I think that's uh, a lot of excitement's in the air. But, you know, now it's just getting the staff hired and, of course, coaching up the student athletes who are on the team and as you remember, Steve, recruit, recruit, recruit. So if you are a prospective student athlete or coach and you think Portland State might be a place for you, email me, jmarcus at pdx.edu. 
There we go. So, you know, I'm excited because I've gotten to, to watch you coach in person. I've known you coaching for, gosh, decades now, decade plus. It's crazy. Time flies. But I'm excited to see what you do with the program and more excited for the kids and getting them in the right direction. You know, we were talking offline a little bit is um, it really is that that culture piece and, uh, you know, not necessarily obsessively focusing on times or what have you, but, you know, getting people engaged and developing people and you do that, the times will come. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a pretty simple equation, right? It's about creating trust. And with trust, you have consistency and stability and predictability. And it's just, it's a really unstable climate in the world, you know, now more than ever with just a shifting landscape about different paths and professional lives, different ways people think about making a living, how we interact and relate with each other. But at the end of the day, it's in our DNA to connect. It's in our DNA to be a part of something. It's in our DNA to contribute. It's our DNA to be seen and be heard and had a voice. And those are all things, you know, you want to deliver because they're the bedrock of any high-functioning organization. And as you know, Steve, and have seen and have consulted on, when that's not there from leadership, it is the fast track to burnout, the fast track to division, the fast track to negativity. So it's just understanding what these key constitution items need to be in place as a leader and making sure everyone on the team from, you know, your staff to the NCAA champion that you may have to the kind of one foot in the door, one foot out the door, walk on. And just as long as they all feel that sense of community and connection and like, Hey, coach has my back no matter what. And I'm supported and I'm cared for and I'm known. We as humans can do amazing things. That's very true. That's very true. I mean, that's what it's all about. So excited for you to get that going. And we're going to get a firsthand look at that journey, I'm sure, and up close and personal, especially if you're part of the Scholar Program. Just saying. Oh, yeah. In the clubhouse, dude. That's yeah. the place to be. If you want to see how to rebuild a program from, you know, kind of almost ground zero, like, you know, we talk the talk a lot on this podcast, but now it's time to walk the walk. And you better believe, like, I'll be sharing the journey because it'll be very much fun and very much unpredictable, but very much worth it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's always it's always fun to see boots on the ground and, you know, lessons learned. There's nothing like being in the game and and seeing what what challenges present you and then the unique solutions that that you develop. Plus, it's nice when you take a little sabbatical like I have from the game, you know, like having gone coach at the junior college level after the visual level, then coach post-collegiately and semi-professionally and professionally and navigate that shifting landscape, then kind of retract a little bit and coach high school. You just come back to that level with a lot of appreciation for the support networks that are in place from the director of academic services, compliance, you know, the athletic trainers, the strength and conditioning staff, you know, et cetera. And I know a lot of people like to create friction between these, you know, unique roles and how they integrate into the team. Like, oh, these people are not so good or these people, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, we're all here to help. And like, you don't get that at the junior college level. You don't necessarily get that at the high school level. And you definitely get mad at in the post-collegiate world. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you come back with a lot of gratitude after quote unquote being in the wilderness and you go, Hey, it's not as crappy as some people, you know, may make it out to be. It's actually a pretty good system. 
because it's a people system and all you got to do is just be hyper-organized, hyper-communicative, and hyper-passionate as well as hyper-competent at what you do and like good things will happen. It's very true. All right. Well, let's get into this week's topic, which is actually something that you're going to have to deal with. We all have to deal with the science of the injury cycle, how to break it, deal with it, and stay out of it. Well, and if, we, if we solve this puzzle, this is like solving world peace. It is. We're not going to solve all of it. But I, I, I think what we can do is offer a different perspective. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this with something that I heard uh, years ago at Gain. I can't remember exactly the, the speaker who said it. It's been repeated many times. But Gain is Vern Gambetta's wonderful yearly, um, essentially, conference but it's more than that it's it's john's been there i've been there it's wonderful you got, i mean you, you gotta go there it's yeah. it's pennies on the dollar i think Vern charges maybe a thousand to two thousand i don't know what it is but it's essentially it's Vern likes to describe it as the formalized version of the coach's hangout that he used to be privy to post track meet or at championship meets where the coaches would just literally hang out in the 60s and 70s and just talk shop and workshop with each other and help each other out. I mean, it's a beautiful community to see it firsthand. Exactly. So I, I would check that out. And I remember there was a discussion and someone said, essentially, injuries are a brain disorder. Mm. And mm. the reason they were talking about that is they said, you know, so much, someone pulls a hamstring, what do we do? We look at the hamstring, we put, we apply ice or heat or massage or like any modality. And we're so focused on this narrow bit, like healing it up. But what we don't realize is that neurologically <laughs> is that the brain has, has changed. It now goes into a kind of protective mechanism, right? Yep. And they presented this wonder, there's several, you know, uh, presenters that gave this wonderful data that looked at post you know acl recovery post surgery post major tear is that literally it is like a brain injury in the mm -hmm. sense that your brain kind of protects it and often the things that we do such as you know hey take a long time off like train in isolation you know don't do x y and z movements around it exacerbate that kind of brain injury because we just get into this kind of protective mode mm -hmm. and then our mechanics change to compensate and protect right yeah. and and then before we know it we're in this cycle where it's like the tissue might have healed but we still have this propensity to injure injury in that same area or somewhere slightly different because like we've essentially relearned how in our case how to run <laughs> which like we're not prepared for so we go down this cycle and then and i'll give one example is what i've seen you know in the past with myself being in this and others who i coach is it's something like this you have maybe achilles tendonitis right mm. You do your calf raises, your Achilles stuff, like it gets better, it gets better. And then all of a sudden, like, it's not the Achilles, it's 
maybe the soleus or the gastroc that that starts to go and then you like do all your rehab you fix that and then it's something else like in that chain and what happens is this cycle and then it just kind of cycles through it maybe it's the achilles again you get stuck in this never-ending cycle where something in that chain is always kind of like you know bearing off or wonky yes off or wonky bearing the brunt of the load and i think part of that is because like well what happens your achilles hurts your brain goes hey i'm going to protect this a little bit i'm going to change how i run a little bit you shift that load (laughs) and it's this never-ending cycle of like we're just shifting this load which gives us short-term relief but never solves the problem over the long haul yeah i'm really glad you start off with that steve because i think that's you know, one of the misinterpretations is we view injury as one dimensional, as a physiological issue only, as just the tissue has been impacted, whether it's through overuse or blunt trauma, right? And we are really, really good at addressing in the moment the emergency of the after the immediate impact, whether it's a tear, a strain, a break. We know how to like really well kind of stop the bleeding, so to speak. But then from there, the overall repair process and reintegration into, quote unquote, being a healthy tissue and highly functional tissue is not just physiological dependent. It has multi-dimensions. It's that neurological element that's so vital and important. And when we only look at injury through the physiological lens and the anatomical lens, and that's it, that's where we can slip into this injury cycle and get super frustrated because you're like, I healed my sore calf. Well, now my Achilles hurts. Oh, I healed my sore Achilles. Now my plantar hurts. Oh, I healed my sore plantar. Now my knee hurts. And it's like throughout that healing process, as you said, the brain is a, you know, amazing, sophisticated instrument of compensation. If you give it a task demand, it will try to do this, but it will do it in with the available resources to it. So if the calf and gastrox is not available resource, it will find a workaround and that workaround can come a habituation or it can create over um, strain and stress on a, another tissue down or up the chain. And so it's super duper important to remember is in Franz Bosch's work, right? I think it's in either, no, it's not anatomy and agility. It's in the other one, strength, training strength, the coordinate of one, his second book. He's like, when you have a, a hamstring strain, as soon as the, the, the period of trauma, the acute period of trauma is over, 48 hours, 72 hours, you go right back into retraining it, right back. Because the brain, the only way the brain learns is through repetition and frequency of repetition. And it's going to lose that motor memory. It's going to lose that motor capacity if you just let the tissues atrophy without any kind of skill acquisition or task challenge placed on it. Now it's appropriate loading, appropriate task challenge, yada, yada, yada. But we just gotta remember the brain, the way the brain works is it just is constantly on, constantly working, constantly figuring out solutions. And if you turn an area of a muscle tissue off for extended period of time, it creates new solutions without that muscle tissue. And then you try to bring that muscle tissue back online. Now it has to create this whole new solution pattern that it already compensated for. And so it's like you are in the brain sense now starting from scratch again because it got used to this compensatory pattern that was suboptimal. And now you're trying to re-optimize it really rapidly because the tissue locally has healed. 
but it's just not ready to be integrated back into the whole symphony of, of muscles and tissue patterning yet. Exactly. The way I like to look at it is you kind of dig a rut, right? Yeah. And then once that rut doesn't work, your your you your brain and body go search. Oh, what else? What else can work in this situation? And you get on this other rut that you're digging, but it doesn't necessarily mean that rut is good over the long haul. And if you watch runners, you know, run or what happens, you see all these these what I'd call brain compensations, where it's like, oh, someone had Achilles issue and they compensated and they don't. And what happens is once you dig that rut, you don't realize that you're doing it because it becomes normal. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm habituated to that. Yep. Yes. You've habituated to that. So a large part of this is if you're looking at this injury cycle is how do we, again, as you said, like the catastrophe, the damage, the trauma phase is one thing, right? Mm-hmm. How do we get out of that? If you tear your hamstring, you got to deal with the, the trauma, right? There's no, no, no excuse yeah. around that. Right but, now. <laughs> yes, right now. Right. <laughs> but like once we get a little bit through that, like how do you make sure that you're, you know, getting good habits and coordination versus ingraining just compensatory short term, you know, compensation that gets you through the that walk, that run, etc. And you often see this, you know, one of the places I would often see this is when they would put people in the boot. Right. Yep. Oh, the boot. Yep. Yeah. You get stuck in the boot. You walk around. You get used to that. You come out, and you can see the mechanical changes that aren't perceptible to that person, just because, like, you know, this is how they've changed things, and and it's tough. That's how you get stuck in those cycles. That's how it never, you know, ends. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the thing. Like return to play protocols, right? Especially coming back into the institutional environment of the NCA, are really important, and they tend to be more acutely focused than longitudinal focus. So let's take a, a boot example. You're you're stuck in the boot because, like, you know, you had a stress fracture, whatever, and the immediate need is to heal the stress fracture, heal the bone. Great, but now you get out the boot, and now it's just okay. Out the boot, all systems go. Like just okay, start a little bit of like progressive loading with normal running, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, 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 You got out the boot, but you spent six, four weeks in the boot. In those six, four weeks, your brain changed its movement pattern or its preferred movement pattern to adapt to the inclusion of the boot as part of the apparatus of movement. So now you have to also have a timeline available for readaption to movement pattern, just even as simple as walking without the boot. And I think that's where a major friction point comes is we just jump from no boot to boot or from boot to no boot. And we just pretend like it didn't impact the brain or cortis pattern at all. When it's like, whoa, 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 we might need to have like a two week interim period between no boot or between boot and no boot to really get kind of back in the groove of moving boot free. Exactly. And I think that's what it is. So let's, let's put some, some hard understanding or hard examples, clear examples on this. The way I like to think of it is, and I, I'm recalling now is one of the persons that gained who, who demonstrated this lovely is uh, a guy named Bill Knowles, who has worked with some wonderful world-class athletes across sports and for a long time did some great work in, in MLS, I believe it was. And 
other sports. But, you know, I'm recalling off the top of my head, he's showing people post-op on surgery, doing all sorts of like movement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you 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 know you you generally have this idea of like oh you get your ACL repaired or whatever it is and you're just like sitting in a machine like doing leg extensions or whatever because you don't want to touch that you know anywhere close to that 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 knee right but the you know the videos and I'll try and put some in the show notes that that Bill Knowles was showing us what he was doing is like no we've got to get movement so that the body the knee remembers it has to stabilize right yep it has mm-hmm. to fire to stabilize it's not just mm-hmm. the strength it's this is when it needs to fire to stabilize so that we're okay and we have this coordinative control right. so it's really, really, hold on let me interrupt you Steve. Yeah. it's really important to remember coordination has a time pressure associated yeah. with it and that time pressure that's a key component of coordination and strength because strength and coordination are are, are wedded together and if you lose the time pressure element of firing and stabilizing at the exact right moment at the exact right time which we often do in isotive or reductionist movement patterns that are not integrated into the whole then we lose that capacity to stabilize in general and that creates more trauma sorry well, for the interruption no you're you're spot on i think it's it's worth <laughs> talking about that time component is so much of it is like things firing at the right time and moment. So for example, if we look at hamstring strains or pulls, right? Often what often what you're seeing is like a firing of the muscles to stabilize at the wrong moment as that leg is kind of coming through, right? Mm-hmm. It's taking yep. too much of the brunt of the force on it. Well, it's like eccentrically lengthening and what happens is you get a nice strain or or pull. It's not always, but often it's like a timing component. If you look at, you know, even stuff like calf Achilles, et cetera, what is that? That's often a timing component when it comes to stabilizing, when your foot's about to hit the ground and load up. If you hit the ground, load up and don't fire appropriately, like you've just shifted the force, I guess is the best way to look at it, to a place where it can't handle it. Right. So and with, oh, go ahead. No, you're good. Oh, and with hamstrings, it's really important to understand that this is why reactive running mechanics is so important is because it's, quote unquote, a biarticulate muscle and it crosses two joints, the knee and also the, the hip. What it's important to understand is muscles like to be in isometry all the time. So it means that one end of it is maybe lengthening, but at the other end of it, it may be shortening. Overall, the muscle belly and tissue is an isometry because one side's long, one side's short, so it's balanced. When we get both sides doing the same thing at the same time, under the time pressure and under a load pressure, that is a very slippery slope where injury happens. And so we often see that, right, when we see a hamstring in triple extension where the knee's locked out, the hip's locked out, then it creates this overall load on the hamstring that is not very virtuous. And then that's where the strain happens, right? Versus you want to see some bend in the kneecap or bend in the, uh, the knee when the hips in extension during your stabilization or grounded or support phase of running, because that keeps the hamstring in isometry and balanced. So oftentimes when we talk about the hamstring, right? What people will do as a return to play protocol is like Nordic curls, right? Or hamstring curls. But it doesn't really work that well because as the knee starts to flex, right, when we run, 
and fold and it starts to swing forward, so too does the hip start to flex, right? So in order to curl, right, the hip's always in extension, always. <laughs> so that part of the hamstring is always in that kind of contracted state, you know, and then now we're just playing only with the distal portion of the hamstring through the bending and unbending of the knee. That's not how it works in gait. So again, Franz Bosch is really good at this stuff. So are other, you know, progressive and forward thinkers in this department where we have to mimic the joint angles and joint harmony that we see in, in, the, in the desired movement pattern versus then just saying, hey, I'm working the hamstring with Nordic curls, which is a better solution than none. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the preferred motor pattern or specific motor pattern that we would see when we're in gait. Yeah, that's a good good point there. And I think that's why you're seeing more of this kind of reactive <laughs> running or even reactive strength training that Bosch is popular popular into uh, into the world now because mm -hmm. it like trains some of those components that we don't. So I want to get to like concrete examples on some of this and some some things. Let's let's just hit the biggest one, shin splints. <laughs> let's hit it hit it right out the gate because Everyone deals with shin splints. Everyone. Every coach I've ever met, right? Yes, it is a tough one. So, yeah. you know, there's there's a couple things that I like to... So if we, we're breaking this down, first thing I like to do with shin splints is I call them, well, let's train the muscle underneath it to take care of the problem once we've got through the kind of trauma phase, which is I just like doing repeated toe taps until you feel that muscle underneath the shin or right next to it just burn right yep. so you're training some endurance in that and some activation of that but then we have to go to the next stage which i think is twofold is understanding okay we've got to train a little below which is stability mm -hmm. on the foot which mm -hmm. starts with you know what pts would call foot intrinsics which essentially is like can you balance and use your foot correctly or is it just like a locked block, right? <laughs> yeah. And if it's a locked block, you have to unlock it and be able to like use it, meaning it can, you know, flex, shift, like all, all sorts of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then when I when we get through that, I like to go through a simple, simple kind of progression where I start with landing and then I, I move to like reactive hops where we're landing and reacting. And then I move to full mechanics of like, okay, now how are we interacting with the ground? Well, you're running slowly. Mm -hmm. And all you're trying to do there is look at, again, we'll, we'll simplify here, but are they hitting the ground relatively correctly? Meaning not too far out in front of their, you know, in, in front of their knee, if you're using that, so that we're not putting too much force going straight back kind of like upwards and back into the shin and then the other part of it is like what is their foot going doing on the ground when they move from kind of absorbing the force to that pushing off or propulsive phase like do they have either no movement or excessive movement which again often puts pressure on the shin yeah yeah it's important to understand what shin spins are symptomatic of it's chronically tightened or shortened calf muscles right either the soleus or the gastrox or a combination of both right 
And what we need to see is we need to see kind of the ability for it to go through the whole cycle, short, unshort, lengthen, shorten, right? Eccentric, concentric, however you want to frame it. As someone who had six stress fractures in their shins, I'm very well versed in all this in terms of what it is, is basically you've put such a high load and demand on the calf muscle to play an over um, important or over noisy part in your gait cycle of propulsive mechanics or pushing off the ground or acceleration mechanics, that that becomes a main driver to thrust not only the leg forward, but also the body mass up. That's a really heavy load. And it's a really common movement solution that a lot of runners adapt early on because we are tend to play a lot of stop and start sports before we actually do like running as a sport. So whether it be soccer, volleyball, football, basketball, baseball, you name it, right? And that's a, using the calf in that stop and start acceleration, deceleration, rapid acceleration, deceleration is part of the harmony we want to see. But when we run, we don't necessarily, after we get up to speed or up to pace, necessarily want to use the calf muscle that much to sustain locomotion. So it's important, like, you know, eccentric heel lowering, right? Or as Steve said, hops or something where you're getting the harmony of lengthening to shorten more fluent and teaching the brain how to quote unquote, let go of the tissue. So we'll lengthen at the right time, but then also turn on the tissue at the right time in the gait cycle to help with propulsion if necessary is super important. And that's a brain thing, right? So you got to think, Shin splints, chronic type calves, that means the calf won't let go. How do I train the brain through a movement pattern that is close to and safe what we see in the running, what we want to see in the running mechanic, which is a letting go or a turning off and lengthening, and then turning on and shortening in, in a harmonious back and forth fashion. So that's why like people like doing jump rope or as Steve said, little hops, you know, wickets are great for that. Stairs are great for that. Right. Anytime we see that constraints that approach act, exercise or a movement solution that is similar to that, man, you're doing a good job. And I think the key here is like, again, with the Bosch stuff, we can get overly complicated. But what I, would, <laughs> what I would say is challenge people to move in a way that doesn't like exacerbate the issue. This is why I love like reactive hops or mm. like you know, jumping rope or, you know, one of my favorite ones to do, especially for injuries that are kind of in that, Hey, we can't get out of the cycle is get in the pool and do some mm -hmm. of these things. Why? Because like, yes, it changes the, the loading a little bit, but it often deloads you, you know, deloads the, the stress on the tissue just enough and slows down the movement, but you can still, if you go in and you do some hops or some jumps or some skips or what have you in the pool, you can still land in a way where you're kind of challenging your brain to kind of like, oh yeah, we're moving. Mm -hmm. So it's often one of these kind of transition points of, you know, of, of figuring out, okay, here's how, here's how we can, you know, move correctly. The other part that I, I would say as well is on some of these injuries, if you have an injury on one side, you can take advantage of how the brain works and train the other side. And you're not going to get as much bang for your buck on the, 
the the non-trained side but you will get some because the way the brain works is it's again it doesn't just think in isolation of like oh activate the left calf and use this motor program only on the left calf you have some like transfer over if where you're doing some exercise on the left where the right kind of gets neurally kind of engaged to a degree so you're looking looking at that as well and then the other thing i would say in addition to using pool or hops or whatever stuff is like also change the, if you change the, the feedback that people are getting, often it will nudge them out of bad ruts and put them in good ruts. And this is why you see sometimes people, you know, where was the origin of the, the whole Nike free, you know, barefoot running shoe. It came from Ben Lanana at Stanford where Nike saw then doing barefoot strides. Why is yeah. he doing barefoot strides? It just is, there's nothing special or magical, but it changes the feedback that the foot is getting. And mm-hmm. when you change the feedback, it often will nudge you out of, out of some kind of, you know, motor program rut and put you in one where it's like, oh, we're going to take this into account where our foot is striking because like I can feel it when I'm running on the grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, it's just different types of learning, right? And it's, that's the key thing is to teach the brain and the body, you know, and give it different opportunities to learn and adjust, to give it like a wide vocabulary of physical literacy. When often we try to silo it and make it a very limited vocabulary of physical literacy because we work things in isolation. The kind of way I think about the human body and explain it to athletes is the human body is like an orchestra of a symphony. Every section and every instrument plays a vital part in the fluidity and harmony of that symphony, right? So the brass, the flutes, the strings, the drums, etc. Oftentimes what we think about in the body is like a solo, a solo performance. Okay, now we're just going to have the, the, the lead violin chair will just do a solo in the middle of the symphony. But we think every instrument is or every tissue or every compartment of muscle that we have labeled in the body as a solo performer. It's not. It never works like that. And we're really good at making up these quote-unquote solo isolative exercises, right? Bicep curl. Okay, we're all good. Only the bicep. And we just over-centrate on this very isolative motion pattern versus even though we say we're primarily and only working the bicep, there's a lot of things that play in even something as simple and rudimentary as a bicep curl. So when we think about it like that, then we can say, okay, this is how we need to reintegrate this instrument that might be broken, the calf or you know the gastrox and the soleus, back into the symphony to play its part and be on tune and on time with its delivery of its notes in a way that's going to be virtuous. The other thing to keep in mind too is Oftentimes we look to passive modalities or passive um, therapy, like foam rolling or massage or now the um, vibration gun as a fix-all, a quick fix, and then that's good enough. Well, the best way to use it is if you're coming back, say, from a calf injury and you want to do this progressive loading, Steve and I talked about and explored that, first use the passive modality, foam roller, massage gun, massage itself to create viscosity and fluidity in the tissues to break up any fascial adhesions to quote unquote lengthen or loosen the muscle belly and then go load because now it's in a prime state that actually can get that fluidity and movement because it's been kind of released a little bit right 
you don't want to just go load right away without, especially in the early stages, without kind of that passive intervention prefacing it, because then you're going with tight tissue to do loading and you're not giving yourself a fighting chance. Also, you don't want to do this passive modality later or in isolation on its own because it will just, like stretching as we know, right? It will create localized, you know, length, so to speak, or fluidity within the tissue, but it's very acute. It will last like hours. And then it goes, goes right back to its habituated pattern, which is being tight. So it's understanding we can use things like stretching, the vibration gun, massage, foam roller, at our disposal prior to this, you know, classroom education time, this tutor session that we call these specialized exercises for that rehab of that tissue. And when we understand that, it's like, cool, okay, now I actually have a plan of attack. I have a plan of progression. But oftentimes what we do is we just hodgepodge these elements like, okay, we'll do this PT exercises here at 10 o'clock on a Thursday. And then I'll go in the pool at five o'clock on a, you know, Friday. Oh, and then I got a massage at like, you know, three o'clock on Sunday. Which are, those are all good modalities to address the issue, but if we combine the ingredients in an intelligent fashion, you're going to get a lot better response and a lot more quicker and a lot more sustainable than if you just kind of like hodgepodge it. Yeah, I think what you're saying here is integrate the the things instead of isolate. <laughs> because the things, yes, <laughs> integrate because, the stuff. Yeah, you know me. I love you. Stop it, my word. But you know. The thing is, the, the, the thing is this, is that like too often what happens is we silo off things and that's why injuries don't, don't get out of this cycle. Because yeah. what do we do? I mean, I know this in the college world or high school world, you know, you get hurt. Well, you, it's almost like you get transferred over to like, oh, now you're with the athletic trainer or the PT or the whatever have you who do a good job. But often it occurs in kind of like this isolation and then they get handed back once you're quote unquote cleared. Right. Right. And and instead, what we need to do is make sure that it's like integrated, meaning making mm -hmm. sure that the stuff you're not just going into the, you know, the trainer and doing some stuff and then coming out to practice once you're cleared and doing some other stuff that doesn't, you know, connect with it. We need to make sure that it it connects so that the progressions that the coach is doing outside match the progressions and the the support that is going on in in the with the PT or massage therapist or or what have you because mm -hmm. too often they don't and that's again another reason why we get caught in this cycle because if you know you're the the example I like to or the way I like to think of it is is we've got the tissue strength up to where it can handle something but the coordination isn't there doesn't matter right you know if we've got the if we've gotten the strength and coordination but we haven't got their mechanics back to like how they should run like they have the strength they have the timing they have the coordination to do it but they've been maybe off for so long that mechanically they've adopted something just completely different it's not gonna it's not gonna matter like you know we could yep. have perfect jump rope hops and reactivity off the ground and if if i'm loading if i'm still in this protective phase where you know maybe to give an example on my foot instead of loading the whole foot and letting it kind of absorb and then push off if i'm staying completely on the outside and then pushing off 
to compensate on the outside of my foot more than, you know, having the the push off kind of load then come back out. That's a problem. And that's going to keep you in that kind of probably Achilles issue phase for a while. So we need to make sure it's almost like as, as coaches and practitioners, we need to zoom out and see the big picture and see how it connects. And if we don't, we just get stuck in the cycle. Yeah. And it's so hard because it's multifactorial and it requires a lot more communication and partnership between all parties that are involved in the return to play and solution process. And, you know, it's just remembering the coach and athlete are a unified team and the coach is kind of a linchpin in that communication chain as long as along with the athlete, but it's behooves the coach to make time to talk to the PT, talk to the athletic trainer, talk to the massage therapist, talk to the physician, talk to, you know, the strength and conditioning coordinative, like whoever's on that kind of return to play team. So that you're, you know, you may not have like all the answers about what that return to play protocol looks like, but also too, you're aware of what's going on and have a pulse on it because it is training just as much as worrying about double thresholds or speed development or, you know, aerobic, you know, capacity improvement, right? It's just as much training of equal import, but of a different complexion than you know, what we typically sign up to do as, as coach. Yeah. So, so let me kind of bring everything together. I'm going to try and simplify this for the reader or the listener is the way I like to think of it. And I think what we've been getting around is like, we have this trauma repair, we have strength, we have coordination and what I'll just call is like moving, <laughs> like moving okay. in your, moving in your sport. And the problem often is we think of these in isolation. You know, mm -hmm. we get repair, we wait along, we stick ourselves in the boot, and then we strength train, and then maybe we coordinate, and then when we move. And what we're challenging you to do is to think of them holistically and think of even when you're in that repairing phase, what is the simplest non-damaging movement that you could do? And it mm -hmm. could simply be, I'm going to go walk barefoot back and forth along, you know, maybe you're still in the repairing phase and you're just going to walk so that your feet remember how to move as your stress fracture re repairs or what have you. But like over time, like our ability to use coordinative exercises, to use movement-based exercises, either maybe starting in the pool or what have you, and then moving outside, like that will increase. But we need to have this coordination between all of them. I think, except for, you know, very short, extreme cases for a long time. As I said, I'll go back to Bill Knowles. I forget what he said exactly, but his goal after a major surgery was to get them moving as quickly as possible. And sometimes that movement was like the simplest, stupidest thing. But it's like you've got to bring that in, in because the the longer you wait, the more your brain goes, okay, I'm just going to compensate and get through this because I don't have to do any any sort of running or lateral movement or what have you. It's like, I just have to compensate. And that's where we get stuck in the cycle. Yeah. And it's important to remember, it doesn't have to be challenging to be effective depending on where you are in that return to play timeline. Like, yeah, it doesn't seem hard walking barefoot, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
it, you know, it's it's feedback, it's data, it's information. And when we look at movement through that lens of being information for the brain, then it t- starts to make total sense. It's why you see kind of training residual time horizons on sprinting, right? And sprinting ability have been classified in the residual world on like three to eight days. Like you need to sprint every three to eight days to say highly coordinative, highly functional, because you don't lose necessarily the contractile strength of the tissue, as Steve talked about. What atrophies is the coordinative fluidity or coordinative efficiency as you sprint less and less and less. Because the more you do an activity or movement skill, right, the more efficient you become, the more degrees of freedom you have, the more muscles it loosens up and the more reactive it becomes. Just like, you know, basketball players shoot a bazillion jump shots every day in the off season. It's not like they take three months off between, you know, the season seasons and then just go back to play. They realize even just shooting rudimentary jump shots or free throws over and over and over again greases the groove, as they say, and keeps that quarantine pattern really, really uh, efficient and also very, very accurate. Because that's what we lose when we don't do movement patterns. We lose accuracy rapidly. And that's what a lot of overuse injuries or strains or, you know, poles that are not impact related, uh, like a hamstring strain or something, are the underlying cause of is that quarantine accuracy. Yeah, exactly. I think it's worth, you know, again, it's like, how do you bring all these things together? So let's, let's sum this up for the listeners so that they yeah. say, okay, Okay, great. I, I hear all this thing. You gave me one example. Like, how do, if someone comes in with, let's say, lower leg, Achilles, calf, you know, we'll say Achilles issue, John, how do you get, how, how would you suggest this coach, like, think about progressing out of the injury cycle they're stuck in? Yeah. I mean, first is just figuring out how chronic the condition is, right? Is it new or is it they've been battling for a long time? Right. And then figuring out, okay, what environmental things are leading to this? Is it maybe their training shoes, which is like, you know, it's just all about going down the the line of reduction and just reducing the magnitude of what possibly is influencing it. Is it their mechanics, how they're moving? Is it how much they're loading and they're not ready to load with that much volume that's in the training program? Right. Oftentimes what we'll do is then step back and go, oh, let's cross train, let's mitigate this. But then we start to realize, all right, it is a fundamentally a correlative issue, right? So the, the decision tree is very simple. Does, is this trauma severe and does it need to be addressed with immediate healing and time off within a, you know, for two to three days? Yes, no. If the answer is yes, there you go. And then you start your, your slow reintegration and return to play protocol. If the answer is no, well, then you go, okay, how do I make micro adjustments to address this deficit and this corner deficit in the athlete? For me, that's just wickets, man. Wickets every day because that is the safest thing I've found and the most effective and simple solution of saying, if we just do 100 wickets every day, day in and day out, that is very rich motor learning that will help allow the tissue to release. Like good examples of my high school kids, you know, like every high school kids, they get shin splints, right? First week of track practice. Well, since we started right off the gate with the high school distance group that I work with, while all the sprinters were going through shin splints, none of the distance runners were at all. Zero, right? Because they're just doing 100 wickets every day. So it's important to have those strategies in place. Now, if it is, again, kind of mild, right? You have severe, mild, and medium. That's the path you're going to take. 
if it's kind of that medium range, that's a different solution where, yeah, you need to back off of the loading immediately because you can't continue to overload a dysfunctional tissue or dysfunctional coordinate pattern. And then do the slow reintegrative work through different types of rudimentary hops, like Steve suggested, you know, maybe slower paced walking barefoot, other types of lengthening, shortening, dynamic drills or activities or exercises that address this for maybe a two, three week span, just however long it takes the athlete to kind of their brain to learn and turn and couple that with, you know, some cross training to maintain the aerobic capacity that they're, that they have. So they don't lose that aerobic mitochondrial biogenesis by taking time away from running loading. So it's, you see, it's multifactorial, but that's always my lens. Is it mild, medium, or severe? And if it's mild, we go one path. If it's medium, we go another. If it's severe, we go this this path. And from there, then hopefully we have better ideas about how we actually can get over this without slipping in the injury cycle or making compromises of like, oh, let's just put you in a super cushioned shoe and continue to run the mileage and workouts. But now you're in a softer shoe and the softer shoe will make it so there's less impact injury. And it's like, you didn't fix the root of the problem. You just put a bandaid on a open wound that's bleeding out and eventually will come bite you in the butt. Yeah, I think that's, that's me, Steve. <laughs> I, I love it. No, I'm very similar. I, I, I think that that fits the, you know, don't just band-aid it, like fix the problem. And often the problem isn't just the way, the takeaway I would give to listeners is it's not just the trauma experienced in the, the tissue itself. It's often the coordination, the brain, you know, it, it, coming with it as well. So you need to attack both sides of it, which is... Mm-hmm. Again, use all the fancy modalities that we know, you know, some work, some don't, but use the ones that you think work to get over that kind of trauma tissue phase. But at the same time, you've got to move. And I think too often we neglect the movement because like we're scared of re-injuring it, but do the basic thing. If that literally means, you know, for my calf and Achilles for a while to get out of that cycle, what I would do is I just use exaggerated kind of walking where I was like, okay, I'm going to practice, you know, like I would in running, like go through the cycle of my lower leg, like pushing off correctly and not kind of compensating as I had learned to do to protect my Achilles. And then you progress with, again, hops, you know, skips, all sorts of, you know, slow, slow jogging, drills you look at wickets all those things where you're like okay we can get some movement back in here to kind of retrain the brain and then you know hopefully you're off to the races yeah i'll give a quick story a personal story here about why it's really important to address the root cause of the issue and not just mask it with a band-aid or neglect it my junior year of high school i was in pretty good shape you know that indoor season ran something like almost four flat for 1500 equivalent or what have you. But then I started to get shin splints and, you know, we, because I had two stress fractures prior my freshman and sophomore year, we were really well versed in how to maintain fitness and, you know, back off. So it got to a place where it was like a mild stress reaction. So I went through all all the great stuff that you do, you know, taking the x-rays, getting the isotopes, blah, 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 whatever. But so I go in the pool. And I, I cross train and I, you know, I work out in the pool for, at the start of the, after the first race of the 
outdoor high school season. So I'm in the pool for four weeks and I'm just crushing it and mashing it. And then I get out the pool, right? And it's like, great. Uh, no symptomatic, pain-free, you know, doing some light jogging, do some strides, doing, you know, kind of a progressive loading pattern. And after a week, it's like, hey, I'm good to go. But I'm still cross-training the pool. So then my first race back, I run a solo 3,000 meter in like 8.55, right? And this is back in pre-Super Shoe era when, you know, breaking nine minutes was a big deal in the 3K, especially like in Oregon, like way, way, way long ago. It's nothing now. But, you know, that put me like pretty high in the state rankings, right off the bat, right off the rip. Well, the the fitness was there, the aerobic capacity was there, but this was, again, an issue where my physiology outstripped my mechanical capacity because mm. I didn't address my movement pattern deficits at all. So I continued to race and train. We ran a lights out DMR, and that ended up being the last race of that high school season within three weeks because I was fit and coaches were like, cool, okay, he's ready to go. And we just didn't know these things at the time. So it's no one's fault. But the, because the paradigms we use were these more isolative paradigms of the past. And, you know, that stress reaction came back real quick and became a fracture, right? And so it was like, I ran like a 428 mile in the DMR. And then it was just like that, you know, if you ever had a stress fracture, you know, in your tibia, you know that pain. It's just like hot, inflamed, localized, ah, to the touch. And like my season was done so, right? And I was in good, quote unquote, shape aerobically and physiologically, but really poor shape mechanically. And that's why it's so important to address the root of the issue because otherwise that becomes cyclical, right? And that's what it was. It was, I had this cycle of injuries. I could get in shape real quick, but then these things that held me back. Honestly, is what got me into coaching was just trying to figure out like, why did I keep going through this injury cycle where I had six stress reactions and fractures in my tibia and fibula like, in a six year span. Once I figured out it was movement, I became quote unquote, very eccentric, right? I was like, I was like, oh, that's when the Nike freeze started coming out. I go, I'll walk around in these and run on these a lot. And I'll run in these in my easy runs or I'll run barefoot. And you know what? When I started to go that route, of then putting more import in strength and conditioning, like calf raises or plyometrics with bounds and pops and little bunny hops or sequels reactive hops or doing strides barefoot or running in freeze around Central Park in college. No injuries! <laughs> it stopped. <laughs> it was done. And I haven't had a stress fracture or lower limb injury since, right? And I mean, I still had chronic tight calves before I learned how to reactively run here in the last several years, but I wasn't getting hurt. It wasn't a rate limiter to my ability to train and compete. And so that's why it's like, we just didn't know those things at times. So no one in my support network's at fault, but now we know. And so like I, to this day, like walk around in Nike freeze, like, and like, we'll also like run around in them because to me, that was a viable solution to get out of this injury cycle, to readdress how my motor patterns worked and functioned and give my foot more learning and feedback, to get my legs more learning and feedback so everything could operate harmoniously and make a nice symphony of movement and gait versus, oh, got to go back and hit the bike hard or the elliptical hard or the pool hard. Great, I'm back in shape. Great, I'm back in the bike. I just got tired of that yo-yoing, you know? Absolutely. That's a great example, and it's, it's spot on. So... There you go. I, th I think the key is thinking about injuries a little bit differently 
and maybe experiment with how to uh, integrate some of this movement and coordination in addition to the strength and, and rehab and um, recovery stuff you're doing. And if you do that, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised on how you can kind of dislodge yourself from the, the cycle. Yeah. Well, if you got questions on any of this stuff, you know, one, sign up for the scholar program and you'll get access to me and Stephen Cloudhouse because Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called now is is gone. It's dying as we predicted. It's going the route of MySpace. You can still try to like reach out on whatever MySpace X. So I don't know whatever it's called. Whatever Elon decides it's called this week. But <laughs> you can find us chilling in the clubhouse. And it's definitely worth the like six thirty five dollars a month that we 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 charge because it's aligned, helpful, useful information of basically coaches and runners from all over the world trying to help each other learn and grow. Like, you know, right now we're in beautiful discussions about, you know, Cheyenne Mountain High School's, you know, training this summer. And Sean O'Day is doing a great job of detailing like, hey, here's everything I'm doing. I mean, where else are you getting one of the top high school programs in the country? Coach being like, hey, here it is for everyone to see, warts and all, right? It's amazing, right? We have discussions going on about wickets or how to, you know, intelligently use double lactate threshold training, right? And it's not just me and Steve, it's a bunch of different people over 600 having these dialogues. It's, you know, what those message boards used to be way, way, way back in the day, instead of what they are now, which are just essentially the TMZ of running. So there you go. So if you're interested, check it out. A productive way to improve your coaching and have those conversations. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate it. Until next time, keep on coaching.